Hey guys, what's up? Here's another episode of Flick City. Yes, this interview I, I recorded two weeks ago. My bad for not putting it up sooner. I put it up later than sooner, but still, this interview still sticks. It's very good. It's still prescient because Sarah Wayne Callies is a producer, writer, voice talent, pretty much does everything with this new series that she created called Aftershock. It is a podcast series, scripted podcast. I am about five episodes in really enjoy it. it has sort of a mystery thriller has a really really good ensemble and yeah basically if you love mysteries and if you want to see actually la destroyed basically the premise is los angeles is destroyed and what happens in its wake another island rises up but then there's something wrong with that island there's something mysterious there are people who, who've died sarah wayne kelly's character she's being questioned on at why she's one of the only survivors of of the incident so here's the iHeartRadio after it's it's actually distributed by iHeartRadio it's available via whatever podcatcher you use I use Apple Podcasts here's the quick summary of it is Aftershock is a fast-paced thriller about a massive earthquake that destroys the west coast causing a mysterious island to rise up from the pacific along with Callie's the podcast also features the voice talents of Stranger Things' David Harbour The Walking Dead's Jeffrey Dean Morgan and The 100's Tati Gabrielle so there's a lot of other people involved, including her Prison Break co-star, Rockman Dunbar. I opened up the interview with an interesting... I was reading that Rockman Dunbar actually recorded his part of the podcast in the trunk of his car. A lot of dedication behind the making of Aftershock. It was re- recorded during the pandemic about a year ago. There were initially before... Obviously, before COVID happened, they were going to record in New York and Los Angeles. That did not happen. I think they only had a day in each for each coast i think if even if that and what happened is a lot of these a lot of the voice talent had to actually record in their respective closets or or in dunbar's case in the trunk of his car so there was a lot of or under covers and whatnot so she sarah wayne callies talks about it during the interview she also talks about lately i've been really getting into crypto currency crypto assets and nfts i asked her a question about her thoughts on non-fungible tokens on nfts and she gives a really interesting answer especially from the artist's perspective on why nfts have the potential of being something that it will in the long run in the long run will be good both for the consumer and you know i think most importantly the, the artist as well so yeah check out aftershock it's on it's it's audio it's very good the sound design is very very good i need to listen to more podcasts myself because i'm just basically doing so many interviews and watching movies podcasts as i mentioned in the in the interview with with Sarah, it really helps me just relax and think and close my eyes and just imagine a world outside of television or my my friggin Mac screen. Okay, so podcasting is something as you guys know that I really love. And I really recommend Aftershock. Also, I wish I asked Sarah about a, a movie of hers, if because it's a movie podcast. I really enjoyed this movie she did called The Other Side of the Door. It was released in 2016. I think it's a really underrated thriller. So if you want to see her cinematically, give her, give The Other Side of the Door a shot. Or if you don't like it, if you like it, if you've seen it, hit me or Anderson up. Tell me what you think of The Other Side of the Door. But again, here is my interview with Sarah Wayne Kelly. She's always been really cool to, to the media. I've interviewed her over the years at the Television Critics Association events, TCA events. And she's always been really nice and accommodating and Actually, Biasly is one of the one of my favorite people to interview. Very insightful and very, I think, look, the, one of the reasons why I love Anderson Cowan so much is he is so candid. He's candid beyond belief. He, he is real. I am not that frank. 
I beat around the bush way too much. I hem and I haul my way through life. And I really find people like Anderson and in my, from my estimation, from the several times I've talked to her and interviewed her, really uh, believe that candid and frank nature is part of the, I guess, the what is the fabric, the uh, personality of Sarah Wayne Callies. Okay, again, most importantly, check out this interview and tell me what tell me and Anderson what you think of Aftershock or maybe if you have any recommendations of of her work that I should check out as well. Hit me up. All right, guys, thanks for supporting me and Anderson on this here Cinematics podcast feed. Here is my interview with Sarah Wayne Callies, the creator, writer, producer, director, voice talent behind Aftershock. Here we go. Sarah, first, I'm, I'm going to start off the interview with just a frivolous question because I've been, I've been in the audio space for almost 30 years. And how does one actually record a podcast in the trunk of a car? Did you ask Rockman Dunbar how to do that? Because that <laughs> a, a, a is dedication. And to me, as an audiophile, that seems almost impossible and dangerous and also inspiring. So It's all of those things. And, you know, you just described Rockman. He is um, almost impossible, dangerous and inspiring as a human being. I, so what happened is we were recording over Squadcast. We had... Um, tried mailing him a mic. We had these beautiful, I think they were road mics that we were FedExing to the cast. But Rock had um, has four young children who were all at home homeschooling during the pandemic because it was early lockdown. I think it was probably April or something last year. And so there was no place in his house that was quiet. So he's like, oh, no problem. I'll go out to my car. And I think he was recording it. I don't know if he still had the mic or if he was using the mic on his phone at this point. But all the windows were bouncing the sound around. So he was like, well, I'll just turn around. And it still bounced all the sound. You know, our, our engineer is like, I'm so sorry, but this, it just sounds like you're in a glass box. And he goes, oh, give me a minute. And there's like this rustling and rustling. And then he's like, okay, how does this sound sound now? And our engineer was like, it sounds great. Where are you? He's like, I'm in the trunk of my car. And I, I was like, oh my God, um, I can't thank you enough. I owe you one, like possibly my right arm. Uh, yeah, that that's how that happened. And then I think when it was over, he had to like text his wife to let him out. Like it was just amazing. Speaking of amazing, you know, you're you're writing, you're co-creating, you're directing, your voice talent, you're you're doing everything for this. Was this how how do you do all of that? Is it just sort of a step by step process, and not just get too overwhelmed because you're pretty much also you're you're pretty much the head of this universe and that seems daunting but is it just an incremental step by step with your process it is yeah i mean it's also it's sequential it's not yeah. concurrent which helps a lot right so the writing happens alone in a room um i was actually shooting council of dads i think i wrote the first four episodes before we started council so the rest of the season i would like shoot council during the week and then go back to my little rental in Savannah and I write an episode over the weekend and like learn my lines on Sunday night and go back to work. Um, but everything was done, right? I finished writing the season December, 2019. And so it was all pre pandemic, um, which is sort of spooky by the time you get to the end of the season, but it actually was written all pre pandemic. And then, and then we were like, Oh great. We'll just five days in a studio. We'll do New York, LA, bada bing, it'll be done. Just kidding. We got one day in a studio in New York, one day in a studio in LA, and then everything else was, you know, closets, trunks of cars. And people were everywhere. Like Tati Gabrielle was stuck in Germany for a little bit because she'd been shooting there. David Harbour was in like rural England <laughs> for a minute. <laughs> um, so yeah, we had actors under duvets 
huddled over mics all over the world. It was a global, international production. But then, you know, so that was the sort of directing and recording of it all. And then, the, you know, the producing is, I mean, you know, a lot of the directing stuff is in the editing and the producing is just those little bits of, you know, who do we bring on board and how do we pay for it and all that stuff. It, it flowed kind of fine. It was not overwhelming, believe it or not. Aftershock is such a multi-layered storyline. It's it's a it's a family story. It's a story about forgiveness. There's a huge mystery mm-hmm. in, involved, and it's also about who do you trust. It's very multi-layered, but I I think it also fits in with maybe a lot of the thematics behind your own body work about surviving at no matter what the cost. I'm just wondering, does this theme consciously tie in with what you want to do as an artist, or is it just just a twist of fate that you have been part of these really, you know, I love genre for genre's sake, but it seems you like to go deeper than that, deeper than the surface with, with everything you do. Well, you know, um, first of all, thank you. Um, Cause I take that, I take that as a huge compliment. I mean, it feels to me like, you know, if you look at the history of some of the genre, like a lot of early George Romero work that started us off on the zombie path started as a, a huge critique of our materialism and our consumer society, right? You go back to Star Trek and, you know, there were huge, huge messages of social justice and and racial equity and inequity um, embedded in those stories. And that, that was what always struck me as so powerful about them is, you know, you can sit down and try and lecture somebody about (laughs) the state of the world. And as we're learning, right? Like the, it's so often they just entrench and shut you down or, you know, don't read the article you wrote in the Huffington Post or turn the channel, whatever it is. But, you know, when we can embed some of these themes in entertainment, then I think we can present them in a way that generates a conversation and that gets people to engage with them. Whether or not they agree with you, at least, at least we're all approaching these questions and these thoughts together instead of separately. I think it's a Tennyson poem you Ulysses, where he talks about, I am a part of, of all who, who I've met. And how awesome is it to do something like Aftershock and actually have your friends and colleagues participate in this passion and labor of love with you? Because on a Zoom out perspective, this must have been just a really personal, gratifying experience to see your friends just partner up with you on this project. It was hugely, hugely, hugely grateful. Um, and surprising. You know, I mean, I've worked with a lot of people over the years. And as I'm trying to move into this sort of second act of my career where I get to, you know, participate in the story process, the storytelling process a little sooner than just the acting component. What's really beautiful is the number of people who've been willing to go out of their way where they have nothing to gain to help me. It's incredibly collaborative and generous. And I think about like, you know, when I, when I decided I wanted to start directing, I reached out to a dozen directors that I'd worked with over the years. And I said, listen, I need to learn about this. Can I shadow you? And there's nothing to be gained. Yeah. It just means you've got some <laughs> idiot standing next to you asking questions all day, um, taking up space. There's not every single one of them said yes. And it was such an honor to feel like I've been able to build relationships with people who are willing to take a chance, you know, and to sort of go, yeah, yeah, you know, I have nothing to gain from this, but if it'll help you, let me, let me hop on board. There's an extreme generosity to that, that it's, it's moving. You know, just, I I think even though there's a ton of podcasts out there, I still think it's a very, can you speak to the fact that I think it's a really underrated space in the fact that a, you get to really 
rest your eyes from all the visuals of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and also B, you get to actually be, you know, a sort of a, a kind of a co-creator because you as the listener, you're actually help creating the vision behind yes. the, the, the thing too. Is that a big draw for you as far as this space? And do you feel that it's really underrated? And I just want to tack onto that really good, really solid sound design and sound engineering with your, your pod. I really enjoyed it. So, Oh yeah. I mean, we got to start with a shout out to Jeff Schmidt, who I think is probably the best sound designer in the business, you know, for me to call up and be like, Hey, so I want to level Los Angeles in an earthquake and rise an Island out of the ocean but I can't do any of that. Can you? <laughs> and he's like, sure. You're like, what color? Like, I mean, he was, the man is an absolute genius. And you know, the success of the podcast is every bit as much his fault as it is anybody else. Um, yeah. But you know, podcasting is really interesting right now because yes, it's blowing up, but I still have dozens of friends who are like, I don't even know how you'd listen to a podcast. And I'm like, hand me your phone. There's a, it's all right here. It's an app. It's free. That's a beautiful thing about it too, right? Is it's free. Yeah. You're not asking anybody to subscribe to something or, you know, buy tickets to something and, you know, money's tight for everybody right now. But, you know, the, the vast preponderance of podcasts, like, you know, like in early radio, it's people talking, yeah. it's interviews. Um, and some of it isn't even edited, which I have to say is a pet peeve <laughs> when somebody like puts up a 96 minute rambling conversation with no editing. I'm like, look, I'm sorry, but my time is precious. I have kids to raise. But then there's this subset. Again, like there was an early radio of these kind of radio dramas. And what I think your point about resting the eyes is brilliant. I mean, at a time when we've all got six hours of Zoom meetings a day, to be able to to give your eyes a break and and let your ears and your brain take over can be a real gift. And also for something like this, the budget for the feature version of this is very, very high. (laughs) Um, And so in order to do it right, no one's going to hand me the budget of a Marvel movie, but everybody listening has this massive catalog of every image they've ever seen, every movie they've ever seen in their head. And and when you close your eyes, you can access it all for free. It's kind of a miracle. It's, it's you know, a, the listener becomes the production designer. They become the set builders and the special effects operators. And it also, in some ways, personalizes it because it means that whatever version of this, whatever version of the earthquake uh, pulls on your own <laughs> fears and neurosis and experience is what your brain will serve up. And so there won't be a disconnect between my vision of it and your vision of it. It's your mind is serving you up exactly what it thinks belongs in that, that blank space. By the way, Sarah, I, very nightmarish for me because I'm in uh, Los Angelino. Thank you for that, by the way. And also, <laughs> so thank sorry. You. <laughs> also, thank you because I, as much as I love couscous, uh, you know, if I'm trying to walk around the streets, I don't know if I can survive on couscous. Is couscous worth as far, as good? Is it is it a good survival mechanism as far as how to actually survive on in in, in uh, Los Angeles as far as eating well, throughout the day? <laughs> I, I don't want to disrespect the couscous no. industry, but it it's kind of an inside joke with my husband because we both spend a lot of time backpacking um, in our lives and especially when we were in college which was before this like crazy profusion of freeze-dried 
foie gras and all this stuff that they have at like REI now, you know, like you can have a five course, you know, Michelin star menu that's just add water and camping now is very different. When my husband and I were backpacking a lot, it was like, you had a jar of peanut butter and like a five pound bag of couscous in your backpack. And after night three, you're like, I don't know, maybe I'm willing to starve to death rather than have another flavorless half burnt pot of couscous. So that was, that was sort of a personal inside joke. I haven't had couscous since the last time I was on a trail in college. Like, honestly, I think it's probably been since 1999, since I had couscous. Maybe it's a different thing now. That, that, and, and one last pri- privileged thing is on your, on your Twitter feed, you were talking about just uh, coming back uh, home with, with some kombucha. My podcast co-host, he's been drinking it and he's been losing weight. So I tried it. I couldn't take it. I'm just wondering, the kombucha, are you a kombucha person or is it, or is it right now on the level as far as couscous goes for you, as far as uh, things, to, things to consume? You know, actually, I make it. Um, oh. Amazing. So I, I like bottle my own. The economics of kombucha are a bit of a, I mean, right now I'm in Vancouver and I'm on location directing. So right now I'm, I am buying it, but you know, I can make five giant bottles of kombucha for about a buck 75. Wow. And if you buy it in a grocery store, it's like $10 a bottle. So the economics of buying it sort of rubbed me the wrong way. I was raised by my grandmother who was raised by the Great Depression. So I am frugal is the nice way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have a couple more questions. Okay. So you're, you've always been a step ahead of the game when it comes to content creation and whatnot. And we are very in the early, early days of this, but recently Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis, they they developed an animated series called Stoner Cats on cryptocurrency. It's, I I don't know if you, uh, it's called NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Yeah. Is that is that something maybe you and your creative team are, are looking towards in the future as far as do you I mean we're, it's still early days and it's kind of an impossible question to ask right now but I don't I, I see it kind of you know you you get to buy these tokens and the people who own the tokens get to actually see the series or whatever that content creator is making I think it it might be a, a new thing I don't know is that is that something far in the horizon for you as an artist You know I'm fascinated by NFTs one of the things I think you know, for visual artists, it's really interesting is this idea that you can structure it so that every time the NFT is sold, there is a commission that goes back to the original artist, which strikes me as hugely fair. You know, I mean, I, there was a guy I knew in Los Angeles years ago who was an early collector of Kehinde Wiley. Um, and my friend has made a fortune, but after the original sale, Kehinde hasn't made anything on those paintings, which just strikes me as kind of crazy that, um, you know, a painting that was bought for $250,000 that might be bought again for $2 million and Kehinde doesn't see anything from that, right? Like, so there's something as an artist that strikes me as potentially with NFTs, creating an economic structure that's vastly more equitable for the people who are the initial creatives. You know, I think art will expand into any space where there is an audience. And at a time when you know, certain kinds of art have been so corporatized that people are frustrated by the limitations. Then they'll find those places. You know, for me, it it was scripted podcasting where there was an opportunity to really exercise a giant level of creative, creative control over your own work. So, yeah, I mean, I hadn't heard about this, this show, but I'm very interested in it. Mm -hmm. I'm 
I'm a little concerned about the environmental impact of yes. cryptocurrencies because mm-hmm. it's one of those invisible or at least easily hideable. Um, yeah, you can uh, hack criminals. Cost. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I just, I mean, it's sort of easy to hide the, the environmental cost to it. You know, I, one of my friends sent me an email about, I think, I don't know if it was Seneca Lake, but it's one of the Finger Lakes that is adjacent to a cryptocurrency mining facility. Yes. And they use the water from the lake to cool, um, to cool the facility because, of course, it generates a tremendous amount of heat. And the lake water has risen from normal lake water temperature to something that's hotter than bath water that's almost like it's in the 90s of degrees um and that's really troubling to me i i I gotta figure out the environmental ethics of cryptocurrency for myself so a couple more questions is and and i I mean this is an accomplice as as a compliment but uh, my mom wanted to tell me she wanted i I told her i was going to interview you today and she just say oh just please tell her i love her work okay you know thanks mom love love doing prison break but how do you as an artist uh, handle all the just uh, just the compounding goodwill that people have for you regarding all of your work and the support. Is it one of these things where you just can't let that get to your head and you have to put put that to the, on the shelf a little bit because you have all this goodwill, or is it something that you've learned over the years just to really appreciate the moment and the compliment? You know, easy as that, I guess. Oh, I'm so grateful for it. I really am. I mean, I came up in theater, so I'm used to people standing up and clapping for me at the end of the day (laughs) (laughs) or not, or standing up and throwing tomatoes, but you get input. Um, And input is useful because it tells me whether or not I'm communicating effectively. That doesn't mean that input has to be positive. There was a lot of negative input over Lori Grimes. And that taught me some really important things. It taught me more about the misogyny of our culture um, than I expected to learn. But it also, you know, Frank Darabont and I had sat down and had a long conversation about like this character should not be uh, an angel. We're not trying to create, I don't want to pander to an audience. I don't want everybody to like me. And so, you know, that feedback, we kind of like high-fived. We're like, great, we did what we set out to do here. And so the feedback is useful. I think sometimes there can be a boundaries issue. And uh, that's just become part of the job, you know, setting those boundaries myself in a healthy way. You know, my family is not public. There's no, my kids aren't on social media. My husband isn't on social media. Um, And I think because I don't put them out there, there seems to be a lot of respect for their privacy that comes back to me. Yeah. Final question. I I co-host a movie podcast and I, I usually ask actors, filmmakers, producers, to name one of their all-time favorite movies. So just wondering from off the top of your head, can you name one of your all-time favorite movies? And what is it about this film that still speaks to you today as a cinephile? And it's not just based on nostalgia of, of days past. <laughs> um, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Oh, yes. Amazing. Uh, it's, when I saw it, I'd never seen anything like it. <laughs> um, I think it was my first exposure to Australia, actually, which may have given me a radically skewed version. I was like, oh, Australia is where all the awesome drag queens live. What is it? I mean, visually, it's extraordinary. It's some of the best costume design I've ever seen. There's an entire dress made out of flip-flops, which is arguably the greatest thing 
ever invented as somebody who only wears flip-flops whenever I can. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful piece about social justice. Um, it's shot incredibly well. It holds up. I showed it to my son the other day. Um, I was like, oh, you need to... <laughs> You need to see this. He was in one of those like old people have never made anything cool. I was like, shut up and watch this movie. <laughs> that is amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, by the way, I, I'm so old. I'm, I'm turning 50 in, in a month. I'm so old. I actually covered that press junket back in New York back in the day. So FYI. So no way. Yeah, it's amazing. So Stamps awesome. Snipes, you know, all those people were great. So well, that was the other thing. It's like <laughs> all of those actors went on to like, yeah. you know, either had come from or went to not to mention that like, you know, it's it's a small part of it, but the Aboriginal representation existed, right? And yeah. so many stories about so many. As somebody comes from Hawaii, like the representing Pacific Islanders and Aboriginal existence is so often like it's totally silenced in stories that are told about Hawaii or Australia or anything else. And um, yeah, it was very cool. Uh, and happy birthday in a month. Congratulations. Okay, thank you thank you so much. And also, Sarah, again, thank on, on my end, thank you so much for, for actually making this a priority as far as the scheduling. Thank you so much for your time. Really love your podcast and your work and continued success. Thank you so much. I look forward to the next time we talk.